Okay, well, uh, welcome everybody uh, to this uh, 19, uh, not 19, 2014 uh, Lana Robbins lectures. We're really delighted uh, to have Angus Steeton uh, to give these talks. Um, as you know, uh, Angus is not only one of the world's leading developmental economists, but many other things. Can you hear me at the back? Did you say no? I'll speak now. Um, speak up. But, but, but he is uh, a lot else. He's a best-selling author, and I had meant to bring with me, but I think it's outside, his latest book, The Great Escape. Um, so thinking of Christmas, um, <laughs> <laughs> there are many better books, better things you can... Many, there are not many better things you can do. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, have a look at that and I can tell you it's a very good holiday read I read it in my summer holidays and I learnt a lot uh, about the causes of uh, disease uh, and poverty and the extraordinary way we've escaped from them in the West and how the rest of the world uh, may do the same um, the book is also actually very interesting about Angus. It tells us about his grandfather uh, and uh, many other things uh, about him. But what it doesn't tell us uh, is about his amazing academic record. Um, Angus was a star pupil at Cambridge, uh, and while he was uh, a research assistant before he was a graduate student, uh, he wrote an extraordinary article on consumer demand, um, which won the first... Frisch Medal awarded by the Econometric Society. Now, I heard Angus present this paper at the famous Hahn Gorman seminar, uh, and I thought to myself, how can anybody be so confident? Uh, but Angus tells me that he was terrified. <laughs> anyway, from Cambridge, uh, he went to be a young professor at Bristol and then a fairly young professor at Princeton where he's remained. He is the Dwight D. Eisenhower uh, Professor of Economics and International Affairs. Doesn't mean he's a Republican. Um, and uh, he has been working, of course, for many, many years uh, on the problems of disease and poverty uh, in the third world, uh, doing wonderful applied uh, econometric analysis of that problem. Um, recently, he's moved on to an even more important issue. <laughs> Some of us think it's the most important issue, uh, human well-being. Um, and he's made major contributions uh, there, sometimes together with uh, his Princeton colleague, uh, Daniel Kahneman, sometimes without. Uh, and more recently, he's been a member of uh, the Committee on Wellbeing and Public Policy uh, that was chaired by Gus O'Donnell, our former cabinet secretary. Uh, we like to think that was an important report which set out uh, what a government might do if it really wanted uh, to maximise the well-being uh, of the population. Um, so we're still hoping uh, that might happen. The um, Robbins lectures, as you know, are three lectures uh, given on three successive days at the same time. Um, the first uh, lecture is called, this is intriguing, a menagerie of lines. I've discovered what it means, <laughs> and you will discover. A menagerie of lines, how to decide who is poor. And this is the first of three lectures, the overall 
name of the, the series is Poverty, Inequality and the Political Economy of Measurement. So, Angus, welcome to the LSE. Longing to hear what you're going to say. Thank you very much, Richard. Um, can you hear me at the back? Okay, thanks very much. Um, Richard is, it, well, first of all, I should say what an enormous pleasure it is to be back at the LSE. Um, I don't think I've ever lectured in this room before, even though it's in the old building, which is even older than I am. Um, so it's very nice to be in this um, lovely room. Um, I also wanted to say what a pleasure it is to be able to give memorial lectures um, for Lord Robbins, um, who taught so many of us, not only was one of the founders of the LSE, but um, taught so many of us how to think about um, our subject. Um, I was actually going to tell the story that Richard just told, but I'll tell you a little bit about it. I was a research assistant at Cambridge. I had not even begun to do a PhD, and I was not registered as a graduate student, so I just graduated. I got a job as an RA to be near my girlfriend and moved back to Cambridge. Um, and I started work on some work, and Terence Gorman, who was here, had this amazing nose for ferreting out anyone who was working anywhere in the world on anything he was interested in. And he invited me to come down here and talk. And I remember taking a taxi from Liverpool Street Station, which is where you went. This is 45 years ago when I gave my first talk here. It's a very long time ago. Richard was a whippersnapper of 35, um, a young um, lecturer, I think, probably at that time. I mean, maybe not. Um, and I remember all the way in the taxi from Liverpool Street Station sort of praying that the good Lord would you know, whip up this taxi into the heavens or do anything which would get me out of this obligation with honor. And I actually didn't even know enough to be as afraid as I should have been. Um, in the audience that day were not only Richard Laird, but um, Terence Gorman and Frank Hahn, as Richard said, who blessedly um, fought all the time during the talks. So the visitor had very little chance um, to talk at all. But um, I remember March's son being there, um, Parthidas Gupta, Jim Durbin, um, Dennis Sargon, Mishu Morishima, um, Richard, David Henry, um, Ken Wallace, um, John Wise, who may be a somewhat forgotten figure. He was famous here for stealing the cutlery in the canteen. And they kept trying to get him to go away, and he would sleep outside and come back the next day. And he made the most astonishing suggestion during the seminar, which no one else would ever have thought of, and really sort of transformed um, the paper. So it was really quite a red-letter day for me, which I will remember. And um, I'm not quite as nervous today, but um, nevertheless, coming back here to an audience like this is always a little bit of an ordeal. So let me get on um, with the menagerie of lines and how to decide who's poor and who's not poor. Um, and let me set the scene for all three lectures um, by talking about this sort of political economy of measurement issue. So a lot of them is substantive material. I'm going to talk about poverty and inequality, and I am going to talk about substance. Um, it will be, parts of it will be familiar to many of you. But the new spin, the new way I want to look at it, is through this sort of political economy of data. 
Now, we're all familiar with the link from evidence to policy. That's what we do um, all the time. We think about that. But what I want to think about, what you want to think about is the other way of that, the way that politics gets into the measures in itself. And so that data are not just given, data are shaped, and then the data shape us. Um, a number of references to the statistics are how the state sees and are developed to meet the state, the needs of the state. Um, Jim Scott, the political scientist at Yale, has written a marvelous book about that. There are many political struggles behind the measurement methods, which I will talk about. Politics is often disguised as science. So there's a sort of pretense that you're doing science, whereas in fact, you're really doing advocacy. On the other hand, just to complicate things, apolitical objectivity is often an extremely effective political strategy. So th this is very tied up and very messy. The state may delegate political decisions to statistical agencies. This is a phenomenon that Max Weber called rationalization. Um, and price indexation is probably the most familiar example of this, in which the government says benefits will be indexed, the consumer price index, instead of the government having to decide every year what the benefits should be. I'll come to that several times. We often like to tell our students that there, are no, there is no measurement without theory. What I want to claim here is that, through, uh, that in addition, there is usually no measurement without politics. Um, either. And indeed, in the last lecture on Thursday, I will actually argue that when there are no politics, that's a bad thing. Um, that politics actually are in some ways necessary um, for good measurement, otherwise the thing can unravel. The statistics that are important for who gets what obviously come under especially great pressure. And if they're not soundly based, they don't have good theory behind them, they're likely to be destroyed or at least damaged by the political um, debate, by the arguments that go on. And I will show you again several examples of statistics that were completely pulled apart um, by not being soundly based and the politics getting into the holes. Now, of course, this is not a council of despair. I, I have to keep saying that to myself, for I'm very good at despairing, you know, and saying nothing can be done, we can't do anything. Um, so it's not that. I mean, there really are real things out there. Um, but we need to understand the complexity of what's going on, and we have to understand that there's no simple, clean division between advocacy on the one hand and objectivity on the other. Politics tend to insert itself or themselves into the lacunae of measurement. Um, here's a quote from my colleague Paul Starr. Where political and cultural conflict and ambiguity exist, the designers of statistics are likely to experience the greatest anxiety and pressure. If statistical measures are not founded on defensible theory, then they're very vulnerable. Often statistics are designed around shortcuts that don't matter when they're designed because they're good shortcuts. You can use one thing as a proxy for another thing or you just ignore some complexity. Um, but if they're not important at the outset, these mistakes or shortcuts tend to get exposed over time um, by the political tides. Um, Charles Goodhart, who's here many years, um, has Goodhart's Law as an example, which is any object that you try to target will, as soon as you try to target, become useless for the targeting. And that's the sort of example that we ha I have in mind. 
So I'm going to talk about poverty, inequality, and prices, three sort of straight economics topics. They're obviously important policy issues in most countries. The measures of poverty affect who gets what and the very broad direction of economic policy. And of course, as I'm sure everybody here is aware, there are enormous debates going on right now around inequality, around its extent, um, what harm it does, if any, and what to do about it, if anything. Um, measures of prices are central to many of these measurements um, and, of course, to much else. Um, we tend to think of price indices as something that's a sort of archetypal economics problem. This is what economists do. They measure prices and they form them into price indices. Um, but they also they do an enormous amount of work um, in economics and in social statistics in general. And they also determine who gets what. So they're inherently very controversial. So I'm going to take three fora or cases to illustrate my general argument. Um, the first is the United States, which has a very well-funded and well-trained statistical service, very good oversight of how the statistical services um, behave, a constant flow of information from the public sector and the private sector, and a very lively, controlling, affecting public debate in the media and elsewhere about the numbers. This is about as good a setting as you're going to get. It's like Britain, too. I'm going to talk about India. Um, which is obviously less well-funded. It's a much poorer country. The st statisticians are very good, but fewer of them are really systematically trained. Still very, very good compared with Africa, which is something that will come up in the last lecture. Um, and there's also a very strong media and debate. Sometimes it's really nonsense, and it takes people off in the wrong directions, but it's a very powerful force um, for democratic... Um, accountability of um, the statistics. And the third case I'm going to talk about is global data, the sort of things that are produced by the World Bank, the UN, the Food and Agricultural Organization. Um, the complication here is that they often produce the data by which their own success is judged. That's never a very good thing um, because it poses all sorts of potential conflicts of interest. The governance of these international data is often very weak. It's not entirely clear that these numbers actually matter for anyone. Um, they matter for the Pope. They work for, matter for Ban Ki-moon and for Bono and other professionals like that. And that's why <laughs> my last lecture is, called, is about papal infallibility because you know, the Pope is an important consumer of these statistics. It's not clear how many other people there are that really care. Now, there are exceptions to this. Eurostat produces numbers, which are international measures. Um, but, and those are used. The European community allocates structural funds based on price-adjusted GDP per capita, um, about 40% of its total budget. So those numbers are really important. They matter, and they're very carefully controlled. The other ones, that's not really true. So let me talk about the menagerie of lines. So the USA example is an example um, where there's been economic growth, but very little poverty decline. So let me show you some of the numbers. These are the official data 
um, from the Census Bureau that's in charge of producing poverty. The numbers on the bottom are the poverty rate um, from 1959 um, through to the latest data, which is 2013. And the number on top is the number of people in poverty. Of course, the population is going up, so the one on the top is going up somewhat, whereas the other one is basically stagnant. That's the point I want you to take away. It fluctuates a bit with the business cycle. The shaded green things are periods of recession, and poverty tends to go up during those periods. But otherwise, there was some decline in poverty up till about 1970, and then nothing has happened after that, which is pretty amazing um, when you think about it. Now, I reproduced this graph um, using my own software, and because I wanted to superimpose, this is just the poverty rate, and I want to put on top of this GDP per capita. And you might think, well, poverty is stagnant because nothing's happening to um, GDP per capita. Well, here's GDP per capita. And that's on the right-hand scale there. And GDP per capita is, there's lots of growth in the economy. Um, you can see the growth rates falling a little bit over time, even before the Great Recession at the very end of the period. But the key thing to see here is this economic growth is actually not turning into poverty reduction, which is something that we might normally expect if things are going well, that it'll be shared widely in society, and it was not. This graph shows it for different groups, for blacks, the elderly, young, and there's a little bit of variety of experience, but basically the same thing is true everywhere. So why the discordance? Now, there's something that will all come to your minds first, is the reason that GDP is going up and poverty is not going down is because all the money is going to the people at the top, and inequality is widening. And that's a very important part of the story. But what I want to make here is it's not the only thing that's going on in this story. And actually, to understand that, we have to understand more about how poverty is measured and about how the income that's used for measuring poverty is connected to the income that's in GDP. They're not the same thing. And therein lies part of my story. So let me tell you this story. So the U.S. poverty lines, the line is, of course, the cutoff. So if you're above the line, you're okay. If you're below the line, you're classified as poor. So that was set in 1963, and here's the scientific basis for the line. The U.S. Department of Agriculture had something called the Economy Food Plan in 1961, which is it said what you ought to eat if you're in trouble. Um, you should do this economy food plan. Well, of course, people don't just consume food, they consume other stuff too. So they allowed for that other stuff too by multiplying this economy food plan, the cost of this economy food plan by three on the grounds that the typical household spent a third of its income on food. So let's take this food plan, let's multiply it by three, that's the poverty line. They had different poverty line for different households, depending on how many adults and children, whether you were a farm household or whether you're an old person. So I'm not going to talk about that very much. That line, which was set in 1963, has never been changed. It's been a little bit tweaked at the edges. And in order to keep up with inflation, it's upgraded by the CPI, by the Consumer Price Index, year in, year out. That's the only thing that's done. So there's an indexation in here in that the line is tied to the consumer price index. And the government doesn't have to decide what the poverty line is every year anew. It just upgrades it. Um, notice it would not have to do this. The minimum wage, which is a similar thing in the U.S., is decided on by Congress. And when Congress doesn't vote, it stays where it was forever. 
and there's no indexation on the minimum wage. So not everything is automatically indexed. The real poverty line is unchanged in 50 years. It was 50% of median income in 1963, but as GDP and median income has gone up, it's now around the 20th percentile. So in some sense, these people are much further down the income distribution than was when it was started. The other thing that's a bit odd about this is you compare the line, here's the poverty line, you say how much money do you have? Well, how much money is defined by your pre-tax income? So if you get benefits from the state, they're not counted. Or if you get subsidies from the state, they're not counted. We'll see the consequence of that in a minute. Now, in my original draft of this slide, I said the previous slide is nonsense. You know, because it's at least weird. I changed to say it's weird. Now, if you think of the factor of three, where does that come from? It comes from a typical non-poor household. So you might say, well, let's correct that. Let's use what factor a poor household does. But if you want to do that, you have to know which households are poor. So you need to know the poverty line before you can get the factor. And you need to know the factor before you can get the poverty line. So you're stuck in a circular trap. And of course, that's why they did it this way, because it doesn't make any sense. And it appears to make sense, but it's nuts. Um, the other thing that you can think about is, if you were to redo the original method now, you get a completely different line from the line that people have today, because CPI updating does not maintain the original method. So if the method was right in 1963, it's wrong now, right? And if it was wrong then, why are we using it now, even rhetorically? I don't know, it's just there. And in fact, if you go back and see what actually happened, the war on poverty was beginning to start. The Council of Economic Advisors needed a poverty line. So they stood around the water cooler and they said, what seems like a good poverty line? So they said, well, we think $3,000 is about right for a family of four. And they said, okay, let's hire a civil servant, she was called Molly Orshansky, to go away and do some science and come up with a number. So she went away and did some science and came up with a number, $3,500. Said, it's too high, go away. So she took another poverty bundle, which was more economy than the bundle she'd taken in the first place, and it came in at $2,985. And they said, great, it's $3,000. Well, it's the number you first thought of. I mean, it's not the number that came out of any serious scientific process. So what's happening here is science is serving as a cover for a sensible but not easily defended number. And you might say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is that people get confused. And the, the thing is totally non-transparent. And the debate ever since, you'll still find in the press saying the poverty line is set at three times the economy food bundle, you know, which is no longer true, um, if indeed it ever were. Another big problem with the numbers as they are now is that the taxes and transfers were not important in 1963. So the procedure that was set up was to compare the poverty line with your pre-tax income. And of course, this laid a time bomb um, for the future. It was fine in 1963, it's not fine now. Because it means that no amount of anti-poverty policy using taxes and transfers can affect poverty. So that if you give people money to bring them up to the poverty line, the statistics would not change. You know, this is really nuts. So we have the earned income tax credit, we have food stamps, we have a whole range of non-cash benefits, none of which get into the poverty line at all. So Congress could enact 
policies that give the poor money and take them out of poverty, but it would not have any effect on the official measure of poverty. So there's this famous quote of Ronald Reagan's in 1988 where he made one of these, you know how you love to say my friends, and I remember him always saying my friends, and I would always think, I'm not your friend, Ronald Reagan. But nevertheless, he would say, my friends, and he made you think for a moment or two that maybe he was. He said, my friends, some years ago the federal government declared war on poverty, and poverty won, right? Which is the graph you saw at the beginning. I mean, nothing happened. Um, and today, or this year, which is the 50th anniversary of the war on poverty, you hear very similar sentiments today, um, especially from the right, who say we've had 50 years of a war on poverty, and here's the data, and really nothing has happened at all. And Becky Blank has this quote, our poverty statistics failed us and made it easy to claim that public spending on the poor had no effect, um, because we don't count it. You would have thought... Well, whatever. So who can change it? So you would, have, you would have thought this might have been fixed. Well, the, the person, the, the office in charge of this is called the Office of Management and Budget. And it issued the directive, or its predecessor did, to the Census Bureau in 1963 and told them to calculate poverty in exactly this way. They were given no discretion to update the methods, even when the methods were clearly wrong. So it can actually only be changed by the Office of Management Budget. Well, you would say, what does it matter which office is called what? Well, it matters, and this, a lot of this comes from Becky Blank. Um, it matters because OMB is lodged within the White House. So the only person who can change this thing is the President of the United States. Right? Now, <laughs> it wouldn't be personally the President of the United States, but he'd have to sign off on it because he'd get the political flack. And through the 25 years where people have been trying to change this, um, it's always impossible because any change in the procedures would take some people out of poverty who were in poverty before, and the president gets accused of callousness. And some people who were not poor are now poor, and the president is accused of impoverishing people. And either way, um, that's political risky. And so you explain this to successive presidents, and they say, no way. You know, this is not broken. We're not going to fix it, or it's not broken enough. Um, there's a recent paper um, by Rebecca Searle um, in Southampton, I think, or in um, Brighton, um, about the UK price index, a very similar story, and it could not be rebased from 1914 to 1947. And during the war, the government contracted to keep the price level within bounds so that the unions would not make demands for increased wages. There's a wonderful account in the official war histories, this is not from her paper, <laughs> about how the war cabinet closed down the war for two days to talk about the price of hake. Right? You know, close down the war, bring on the fish. Um, because the consumer price index stability was seen as crucial to the war effort. And so it was important enough to just basically ignore Hitler for a day and try to reweight the CPI. They never did it. They were pouring out millions of pounds to stabilize a price index that no one believed and was made enormous fun of by the newspapers. This, this comes from Rebecca Serla. This is from the Daily Mirror. The Edwardian working man with his billycock hat, clay pipe, and choker. The Edwardian working class housewife, badly dressed and badly educated. And presumably she didn't know how to cook either. Um, I'm updating it. Um, these people are still supposed to be representative of at least two and a half million wage earners in this country today. 
you may earn 500 pounds a year on a small car, cut quite a social figure in the neighborhood, but if your wages are controlled by the cost of living index, then your needs, tastes, ambitions, and hobbies are roughly classed as those of a coal heaver in 1904. Newspapers can sometimes be quite elegant. I don't know whether the Daily Mirror could do that today, but anyway, it's really good. Um, so then people started seriously talking about reforming the price index, and the federal government does what it often does when there's conflict like this, that it doesn't know how to handle it. It appoints an expert group. And when I get on to India, you'll see they're even fonder of expert groups than the federal government is. And so they get an expert group from the National Academy of Sciences, which I don't think happens here to the same extent. But they ask the National Academy of Sciences, they give them some money, they appoint a panel. The National Academy is very careful at getting political balance and things like that. Um, and they recommended a whole bunch of improvements, some of them straightforward and non-controversial, like let's include in all of income, not just pre-tax income, and some of them um, much more controversial, like how medical expenses should be treated and about geographical price adjustment. But there's been no reform in the 20 years since that um, report was reported, even though the report is very heavily cited and used and it's part of these discussions all the time. Now, I was on that panel, so I should declare some um, conflict of interest here. But more important person was on this panel was Rebecca Blank. And Becky Blank was on the panel, and she's particularly interesting because she became politically very powerful. And a few years, in, in the last Obama administration, she was for a long time Assistant Secretary of Commerce. And then before she went off to be Chancellor of the University of Wisconsin, she was actually Acting Secretary of Commerce. Now, that's interesting because the Commerce Department in the U.S., for historical reasons, controls the Bureau of the Census, and the Bureau of the Census controls all of this stuff. So if anyone was in a position other than being President of the United States to get this changed, um, Becky was in a position to get this changed. And she claimed it was impossible. And she beat her head against it for years and years and years. And what she found the solution from, which has actually changed the whole dimension of this, and it's really important, she didn't solve the original problem, she solved a different problem, which is she funded, she put enormous amount of money into the Census Bureau to enable the Census Bureau to calculate a supplementary poverty measure, which followed the lines recommended by the panel. But that had no official status. So she basically politically neutralized the the number, and that allowed it to function as a proper statistic and to record poverty very much better. But it was no longer the number that the indexation and all the things were, all the um, um, rationalization was based on. So the census now publishes this supplementary measure, regular basis. Um, and it doesn't matter that, in some sense, the official line is so ridiculous because people just use it as a tool instead of using it itself. So they say, for instance, you would qualify for Obamacare if your income is less than four times the poverty line. They can change that number. You know, the people who drafted the Obamacare law thought about four or five or six or three and decided on four. So you can take multiples. You can take 1.33 times it, which is the qualification for Medicare, or 1.3 times, which is the qualification for food stamps. And so it, it, there's a workaround, essentially, which you can do without actually changing the line. Meanwhile, the supplementary measure can actually um, give a reasonable measure of what's actually going on in the country. This is from a paper by um, Fox et al. Um, last year, 
<laughs> and they calculated the supplementary poverty measure back um, to, if not the beginning of time, at least in 1967. And you can see the official measure is underneath, and there's been essentially no progress against poverty. Um, if you look at the red line, which takes benefits into account and does a better job of all these details, there is some progress, still distressingly little, but some progress against poverty. And in particular, if you look at the place I, I've ringed at the very end there, um, this is hard to see, but it's actually a big deal, and it's much bigger for children and other groups, is that the blue line, the poverty, there's a big increase in poverty um, during the Great Recession. That's a much smaller increase using the supplement measure. And that's actually telling you that the safety net actually worked. Um, it didn't work perfectly, but it actually moderated the increase in poverty, which would have been very large otherwise. So this is just a much better statistic, and it's very widely used um, by people on all sides um, of the um, political spectrum. Let me say one more thing about why poverty has declined so little. We've seen the inequality story, but there's definitional differences. So the income that goes into measuring poverty is not the same as the income that shows up in the national accounts. And one very important item in there is government expenditure on health care, which counts a part of personal income and part of GDP in the national accounts. But of course, if the government spends on health care for the elderly, and you go and ask someone how much you earn, they don't put their share of that into the account. So that's not there at all, but it's a major source of growth in GDP per capita. Now, poor people benefit from the fact that healthcare is getting better, and it's become relatively more expensive over time. There's Medicaid is an official government scheme for healthcare for the poor. Um, and there's a lot of cross-subsidization. Um, if you're poor and have no insurance and show up at a medical room, at an emergency room, someone will pay um, some of that. Um, so should this subsidized health care or some value for it be included in the income of the poor? And that would have fairly dramatic um, results. Um, Rich Berthauser, who's the person who's argued most consistently for this, claims that from 79 to 2007, if you put all the transfers and the value of health insurance changes, a pre-tax, pre-transfer decrease in real income for the bottom quintile which was 33%. The bottom quintile got completely hammered. If you add those things back in, it becomes a 26.4% increase. You get rid of a lot of poverty that way. You can get rid of a lot of inequality. The problem with this, of course, is you can't eat health care. So, you know, if you're a poor family and you don't have money to put food on the table or to pay the rent, the fact that the government is, is subsidizing your health care is a very good thing for you, but it doesn't actually put money on the table for food that you can eat. And if you ask what the value people would attach to that, it's some of that, but it's probably not the full value of its cost. And indeed, many of us think that the reason that median incomes have grown so slowly is because of the inexorable rise in the price in the cost of health care in the United States. So this would be like adding a statistical insult um, to real injury, which is there's all this health care which is making these people poor, and we're saying, well, we're going to attribute to it to you so you're not actually poor at all. And you can imagine, therefore, this is a hugely divisive issue between the right and the left. The right would like to add this in and say poverty is going down, and the left would say, wait a minute, you really can't do that. So let me move on for the second part of this lecture to India. And India is like the United States on steroids. 
um, which is there's real rapid growth going on. There is a lot of poverty decline, but the poverty decline, the, the, the common thing across both countries is the poverty line is not nearly as large as it should have been given the amount of growth there was. So in both countries, you've got much, the, the poverty decline you would have expected from all this GDP growth has just not materialized at all. So let me tell you the story of India, and I hope you like it. I, I love this story, but you know, there's lots of things I'm interested in that other people find it hard to get interested in, so let me try. So there's been historically unprecedented economic growth over the last 30 years in India, and in fact, the World Bank no longer classes India as a poor country. It's a middle-income country, albeit a lower-middle-income country. Um, household consumption has grown at 3.5% a year from 1980 to 2014, which is like nothing else that's been in Indian history, and at 5% a year since 2000. Um, some slowdown um, in the last two years since the um, Great Recession. There's a rapidly expanding middle class who see themselves as successful global consumers. If you wander around South Delhi, for instance, it's hard not to believe sometimes that you're in New Jersey or Connecticut, and many of the inhabitants seem to feel that way too. Um, they're very successful and politically powerful business interests um, who've been doing very well um, over this period. Yet India is poor too. Um, it has about 300 million poor people living at or below destitution standards. That's something like $1.25 a day, and I'll talk more about that in subsequent lectures. And if you don't like the income numbers, <clears throat> a little more than a half of India's children are severely malnourished. You know, if you take your kids to the doctor and they look at the growth charts, then these Indian kids are more than two standard deviations below where they're supposed to be in terms of height and weight and height for age. Beyond that, Indian men and women are among the very shortest on the planet. And even though they're getting taller over time as things improve, uh, my calculations show that it will take 250 years for Indian women to grow as tall as British women. And the rate at which women in India are catching up is nothing like as rapid as is happening in Africa or China or elsewhere in the world. So what happens to poverty? Well, this is, it's complicated. Uh, my wife always jumps up and down when I say that. They say they don't want to hear that. Tell them what's happening. Okay, so they keep changing the poverty line, unlike the U.S. So there's three lines here. Um, the Lakadawala line the Rangarajan line and the Tendulkar line. The Tendulkar one's in the middle. Um, and what I really want you to take away from this is these lines have gotten higher over time. So the poverty's gone up with the new lines. So focus on the directions of these lines, which are consistent. So this is the fraction of the population. If you go back to 1972, it was over a half. And by that same line, by the early 2000s, it's down to below 30%. If you go to the next line, it of course jumped up, but the downward trend continued. And the last line, which only has a couple of periods, and it is also showing a very rapid decrease in the rate um, of poverty. Um, these are official Government of India um, figures. Um, if you go to the number of poor, as opposed to the percentage, um, you can see that <clears throat> Until recently, population growth was sort of battling against those declining numbers, so the absolute number of people in poverty into the 2000s was either 
actually increasing a little bit or not falling by much. But you can see in recent years, there's been this huge poverty, huge decrease in the number of people who are poor. But you're still talking about a number between 300 and 400 million people, depending um, how you do it. That is, remember, the World Bank thinks about a billion people in the world are living at destitution or below. And so there are about a third of those in the whole world um, are living in India. So the, the story here, which is sort of central part of the story, is that you've got these people who think they've moved to America and are living like Americans um, and doing very well, thank you. Their children go to the mall. They go to fancy restaurants. You can book them on Zagat. You can get Uber, or you could until yesterday. Um, and they're living, you know, very similarly to the way that we're living. But 300 million people in the same country are living at the edge or below destitution. This is a hard circle to square. So the poverty, this, I think, tells you what we got here. The poverty rate has declined no matter what measure we use, though much more slowly than GDP or aggregate consumption growth would seem to warrant. Now, the problem here, which is a little bit different from the US, is all this growth, which is the great thing that India has done over the last um, 20 years, comes from the national account statistics, whereas the poverty numbers that I've been showing you are measured by asking people how much they have from household surveys. Now, the problem is those two sources don't square up with one another. Um, and Indian statisticians and economists have known this um, for a very long time. Um, and I've worried about it for a very long time. Um, in the 72-3 survey, which was the first one I showed you there, the consumption on average was about 5% less than what showed up in the national accounts. In 83-84, it was 25% less. And in the latest surveys, less than half of what the national accounts is showing is actually turning up in the household surveys. Now, I've put this in red line. Inconsistency is at the heart of the political and statistical debates about poverty in India. This is just this huge gap, and it's a wonderful example of where the politics gets into that gap and does horrible things with it. And that's the story I'm going to try to tell you. There's some increase in inequality too, but it's less important than this gross and increasing inconsistency between our two basic data sources. The background politics, the political problem is how to run an economy that is doing so well for some while continuing to hold so many poor malnourished people. How to get reelected when only a tiny fraction of the population is doing. It's not a tiny fraction, but when a whole lot of the population is being left behind. The current government, the BJP, is a religious and business-oriented party. Um, if you think Republicans in the United States, you would not be very far away in some respect. Um, the Congress party, which was recently voted out, is a business-oriented party too, but with a pro-poor rhetoric that sometimes delivered pro-poor policies, which may or may not have been very effective. Both are dependent on rapid economic growth for legitimacy, um, and that's one of the reasons you're not allowed to fiddle with the national income counts, because they're frightened if you try to fix them, you'll discover that the growth was not real. It's very important politically that growth not only take place, but be seen to help the poor, either through direct schemes, which is what the left would like, or rising tides, um, rise, lifting old boats, as the saying is, which is what the right tends to argue. Um, there's a huge political divide, as elsewhere, as to whether growth should be, have priority. 
In India, the extremes are very extreme. One is that growth is sufficient as well as necessary. You don't need any social policies at all. The other stream, the sort of communist parties in India, believe that growth actually causes poverty um, by redistributing upwards. And the middle worries about the ineffectiveness of pro-poor policies. So for many people, the existence of so much poverty in India is a real embarrassment. These poor are globally destitute. They're financially and physically. I mean, you can see it in their bodies. And for many of these people, their immediate instinct is to say, this cannot possibly be true. You know, we've come away from that. We're living in this successful globalized economy. How can this possibly be true? So within this framework, how does poverty get measured? Now, the results matter a bit because they're used to hand out food subsidies to the states from the center. They're not used to identify individuals as being entitled to particular benefits. So here's the history of measurement. The Planning Commission um, has been the creator and keeper of poverty statistics in India. It's an important agency, even as the um, fashion for planning um, faded. The chair of the Planning Commission is the Prime Minister, um, though I don't believe he ever attends. The deputy chair has a status similar to the finance minister. Um, and its abolition was announced in August by the new Prime Minister Modi, who said the Planning Commission will cease to exist. So no one knows what's going to happen to poverty measurement in India. Maybe poverty has been abolished along with the Planning Commission. Um, who knows? In the 60s and 70s, the Planning Commission used two lines, one urban and rural, um, likely with some reference to calories. We don't know. And this was formalized in 1977 um, with reference to the calories required for various um, activities, 2,400 a day rural per person and 2,100 per person um, urban. So here's a picture of how this is done. <clears throat> this is what I call turning science into policy via econometrics. Um, on the horizontal axis, we have per capita household expenditure. On the vertical axis, we have per capita calories. The experts decided that people need 2,400 um, calories per day. So you start up there on the top left. Um, you move along to find what is the average per capita expenditure, total expenditure of households at which that target is met. So you move along the line until you hit it, and then you drop down, and that's the poverty line. And that's how it was set. It's not the same as in the U.S., but obviously the food rhetoric is the same in both places. In the urban areas, it was you draw a different line, which turns out to be lower because people use less calories in urban areas, and that gives turns out to give you a higher line. So there was a higher line in urban areas than in rural areas. Now, of course, the food basis of these lines enhances their political acceptance. But there are many problems. For one thing, this takes no account of the fact that calorie needs vary large, greatly over individuals. And we actually know from the early history of linear programming that you can give people all the nutrition they need to survive on very, very small amounts of money. And in fact, that's how farmers program the feedlots for their animals. You just give them exactly what they need, and you don't care whether the cow likes it or not. But people are not cows, they're not machines. And so they, they have preferences and they care about what they eat and it affords all sorts of other functions. So these things are, these biological lines are not really very well based. 
The difference between the urban and rural doesn't really make much sense either. They talk the higher cost of living, but there's no higher cost of living goes into these calculations. So once again, it's sort of a piece of malarkey that's made up because it sort of worked. And if you have separate lines for urban and rural, why don't you have separate lines for different states? I mean, India is a very big country. Kerala is very different from Punjab or UP. Um, and maybe you should draw a line in each one. And I know why they don't do that, because you get really silly results if you try to do that. And so once again, this is a sort of thing that's sanctified by custom, but it doesn't actually make any difference. Now, what happened? So most of this is now about this discrepancy between the surveys and the national accounts and what it did. So when they first started out doing this, they said, well, look, you know, the surveys are only 80% or 95% of the total, so they're understating the total. So let's take what we measure in the survey and gross it up to make it match the national accounts. Okay? So that basically guarantees that if the national accounts are growing very rapidly, it'll show up in poverty reduction. Somewhere along the way, when the left was sort of in control, they stopped doing that. They said there's no satisfactory reason why we should do that. So they stopped. And then they took the numbers from the surveys as being definitive. So then you get this discrepancy that there's all this economic growth, but it doesn't necessarily show up in poverty reduction anymore. Now that polarized the two sides and made people really furious. The right said the national accounts are obviously right. You should have been adjusting this all along. And the reason the poverty is not going down is because you guys refuse to accept the truth of the national accounts numbers. The left said the national accounts are obviously all wrong. If we can't actually see people getting this stuff, they're not getting it. And you can't possibly say they're not poor because of some imaginary number you made up. So you get this very vituperative campaign um, with all sorts of stories on the right saying these people are living, are, the enumerators are not going to households at all, they're sitting under trees or they're sitting in tea shops and making up numbers. And a lot of distinguished economists who should have known better got into that fight. But they actually came up with serious stories. So this reporting period, this is about as much into the weeds as we call in America that I'm going to get. But I wanted to tell you this story because this is a sort of statistical detail that's so obscure only its mother could love it, and not that on every day. But it became the territory over which this battle um, was fought. So this is what the reporting period in the survey. Okay, never heard of this. You will never hear of it again after tonight, but bear with me for a minute. So the question in the survey says, how much rice did you buy over the last so many days? Or wheat, or bread, or beans, or everything else, okay? Now the Indian tradition in the survey, which goes back to Mahalanobis, who started these things, was that this period should be 30 days. So it's how much rice did you buy in the last 30 days? Now in the debate, the people on the right said, that's far too long. No one can remember what they bought 30 days ago. You know, what did, how much did you spend on lunch yesterday? 20 rupees. How much did you spend on lunch three weeks past Friday? Well, I have no idea. Okay, so they're forgetting it. They're understating. 30 days is much too long. We should do what other statistical services around the world do, and let's have seven days. And the left said, Malinobis showed this in 1946. This is right. We're always going to do it this way. Completely unresolvable. So what did they do? Well, they did what any development economist nowadays would tell them to do, which is they did a randomized control trial to find out the truth okay, and settle this debate. 
So amazingly, the surveyors did a nationwide randomized control trial. Every village in the survey was allocated to one arm or the other, and one arm got 30 days and the other arm got seven days. And sure enough, the people who got seven days <coughs> reported much higher flow of expenditure per day than the people who got 30 days. Okay? And in fact, it was a big deal, a big triumph for the right. Well, and the effect is huge. Okay? If you measure it seven days, you get rid of 175 million poor people. Okay? This is one of my slogans. I always say the easiest way to cure global poverty is statistical. You know, you just define these people out of poverty, or you have them report their expenditures in seven days. Who would ever notice that? And, you know, you've cured poverty, or a lot of it. This is more than 10% of world poverty. I mean, these are huge numbers. Um, of course, what you want to remember here is if it's this sensitive, maybe we shouldn't be doing it at all. And that's another message that I'll come back to. But, of course, this was an RCT, and like all RCTs, it doesn't resolve anything because it doesn't tell you why this happened, right? And in fact, all it did was raise the stakes, because now they knew they had something to really fight over, but no one knew who was right. The left still said Malinovis was right. Seven days, they remember things that you're not supposed to remember, and it's overstating. And they say, that's nonsense, you're forgetting stuff, and so on. So that big fight went on. And so there was another impasse. Um, how are you going to resolve this battle? Well, they resolved it in the worst possible way, <laughs> which is they said, let's do both at once. Okay? So the questionnaire now says, how much did you spend in the last seven days? How much did you spend in the last 30 days? Well, holy mackerel, they can multiply and divide. So that what happened was those two numbers are pretty much exactly in concordance with one another, which in the randomized control trial they were not. And that screwed up poverty measurement in India for a decade because they only do these big surveys once every five years. So this one was a dead loss, and they had to wait five years until the next one. And of course, that gave them another five years to argue what the form of that one should be. So what did they do? They appointed yet another expert group, which complicated things. And there's nothing like an Indian expert group. You get a bunch of academics together in a room, and they think up the most Baroque schemes for how you can measure these things. But they came up, and it was accepted until recently. That's been the basis for the counts. Now, coming to the end of the story, <laughs> things really do begin to fall apart. You know, the, the, this is nothing compared with what is about to happen now. So. This is not so much politics, but facts. Um, and they also have an unfortunate effect to destroy these things if they're not soundly basis. So one of the most remarkable things that's been happening in India over the last decade or two is there's been a remarkable decline in per capita calorie consumption in India, also in protein. So this is a country where there's mass malnutrition. Um, people are way too short. The children are way smaller than they ought to be. There's a lot of economic growth. And so the first thing you would think is when you get this growth in a stunted, malnourished population, they'd start eating a lot more. And they did exactly the opposite. They add a lot less. Calorie consumption is going down. And this is happening at all levels of consumption, though more among the rich than among the poor. But it's happening even at the bottom of the income distribution. And this is like a tremendous puzzle. Now, I mean, I've worked on this for several years. I have an opinion, but I, I wouldn't say that there's, it's an open and shut case. 
So if you go to the Communist Party of India Marxist brand, the CPIM, they have a bunch of economists who work for them, and they say, we know what is happening. People are being impoverished by neoliberal globalization. You know, the, the fact that people are eating less is because they're really, and you say, but we look at their incomes, and they have more, and they say they're all measured wrong. You say prices are wrong. So they just latch onto this fact. I think, actually, what is much more likely is that this is a sign of progress. Um, but as you can imagine, this is a very controversial position. Um, poor people in India who work in the fields do an amazing amount of back-breaking manual labor. As they get better off, and as there's easier water supplies, there's better sanitation, better transportation, that burden eases a bit. So the calories they're using as fuel, just to fuel that amount of work, um, are being reduced. And I think that's the reason why the calories going down. They'd still be better if they ate more, um, because they're really short of calories. But it's just they're not as immediately hungry as they were, and so they're eating less. And I think that's what's driving this. And if so, that's a really good thing. And one piece of evidence, and there's quite a lot, is that if you look across areas of India, it's the healthier, richer places, like in Kerala, that have lower calorie consumption per capita than do the less healthy, poorer places in the north. So you sort of see across space, the more developed places are consuming um, less calories. Um, so what do you do here? Suppose that it's a good thing. So what will this do to the poverty kind? Well, real income is increasing. Um, the poverty line is updated by the CPI, as it is in the US. And so poverty is declining, which is the numbers you've seen. And that's correct if the decline is being driven by a better world. But there's a bunch of people who say you shouldn't measure poverty that way at all. You should count the number of people who are getting less than 2,100 calories a day. And that's gone up from 50 to something like 75% of the population. That's the impoverishment um, story. Um, and so this is sowing even more confusion and political controversy. So this poverty line, I think, really has lost public credibility. And the final act in the story was the Supreme Court had asked the Planning Commission to pronounce on how much people needed to get by. And the Planning Commission, reasonably enough, sent the poverty line, said 26 rupees per person per day. Um, but they said this would be enough to take people out of poverty, which was very unfortunate rhetoric. They should have said this is the absolute destitution line or something of the sort. That got a lot of publicity, and the media went berserk. Um, and because, of course, the media are located in Delhi, none of them could imagine living on 26 rupees a day, let alone the readers of the newspapers, who are pretty well-heeled, too. And they thought this was just a completely ridiculous um, number and that the planning commission must have gone mad. Now, of course, this is very telling because there are 250 million Indians who were living below that number when these people were saying, this is a ridiculous number. And it tells you just how far poverty has moved out of the line, out of the minds and the consciousness of the relatively well-heeled um, Indians. Now, then it began to get really, really stupid. Um, this 26, um, what about, this 26 rupees was reported in the Indian press, and it was converted to US dollars using the official exchange rate. So the Indian press said, the planning commission says people can live on 30 cents a day. Even the wicked World Bank allows them $1.25. 
You know, the poverty line, the Planning Commission is four times meaner and cheaper than the evil World Bank that's been impoverishing us for all these years. The Financial Times did the same thing. I mean, you know, you would have thought they would have known what a PPP was, but no, they divided it by the exchange rate and said it's only a quarter of the World Bank poverty line. So the Planning Commission is just completely lost it at this point. So what did they do? They set up yet another expert group, like the fourth expert group. And this is like drugs against malaria. You know, the first one was effective for 20 years. The next one lasted about five years. And then the last one lasted about 10 minutes. Well, this expert group was set up just months after the last expert group had set up the poverty line. Um, and the expert group just abolished, was sorry, published its report, and pretty much on the day it published its report, the planning commission got abolished. So there's no one left to say whether this is a good report or a bad report or anything. So maybe it really is the end of the line. Um, these standard poverty measures are now discredited, um, in part because events discredited the rhetoric, so that the political squabbling over the measure of success was really about to destroy it. And it left once, it just left the political divide even wide. It's completely free for anyone to claim anything they want now, and that is exactly um, what they're doing. It's odd that this didn't happen in the US, and I think it's because of those workarounds. The, the, the line, its initial purpose was changed and people could use it in a flexible way, and that couldn't really happen um, in India. The last but one expert group tried to abandon the food rhetoric um, which is a very sensible thing. I mean, any sensible consideration of this says that a poverty line should be something that's socially acceptable, that's socially constructed. Yet, when they did that, the subsequent expert group denounced them, and most academics in India have joined in that denunciation and say, you've got to do this in terms of calories. It's the only legitimate scientific way of setting a poverty line. So perhaps the scientific disguise is needed for, to work as a social construct. I mean, you're in the land of mirrors. It's enough to turn you into postmodernists. Um, the other thing you learn is that ex both countries love expert groups. Um, you sort of punt. So just the last two slides in a coda, what about all this data on malnourishment? All these children and adults who are malnourished. When those numbers came out in 98-99 survey, they caused enormous consternation, even among those who are not usually bothered by this. And the then Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, a very distinguished economist, said that they were a national shame, um, which is quite a thing for a Prime Minister to say. How that's unwound over the previous recent years is interesting. Um, because you ask senior officials in India about this in public or in private, and they say, well, these figures are very out of date. You know, these are 15 years old. While one suspects that with the other hand they're not talking with or whatever, they're suppressing any possibility of repeating that survey. And the normal time span would that survey would have been done in 2004, 2005, and it's been systematically blocked. And it seems like one will be coming out in the next year or two. You can't stop these things down forever. But another part of the politics of this is just let's keep the bad news or possible bad news at bay. Um, sorry, I went the wrong way. And just as a final line, um, one of the things that I find most distressing over the last year is some very eminent economists, Indian economists, have pressed the argument 
that poverty doesn't really exist, or if it exists, it doesn't matter. Um, and the argument about the anthropometrics is that there's nothing to worry about here. Indians are just supposed to be short. God made them that way, and we shouldn't worry about it um, at all. Now, I don't think almost anyone in the nutritional community believes that anymore. They used to believe that many years ago. But by and large, you'd find these countries where people were very, very short, and then they got properly, and, and properly nourished, and GDP began to rise, and they grew up to be the same size as everybody else um, in the world. So that is not a very respectable thing to believe, but you'll find lots of people in India who believe it, and that malnourishment is not a problem. Um, so to me, why Indians are so malnourished is a key area in which to focus. There's this wonderful new work by one of our Princeton students on open defecation, which got into Modi's opening speech, um, his first speech, and they're trying to really do something about that. But there's a very strong strand in the upper successful classes of Indian society that takes the view of what I call poverty denialism and sort of growth triumphalism. Let's go for economic growth, and there really isn't any poverty anyway. So on that sad note, I will end and come back tomorrow. Thank you. Angus, that was great. Thank you so much. Uh, so many worrying things. Uh, has anybody got any uh, contribution to make on these worries? Uh, yes. How do you think the poor in India compared to the poor of China with a Marxist capitalist economy? Are they doing better in China or worse? They're doing much better in China. Um, or they're doing much materially better. So, you know, I'm a firm believer in the multidimensionality of poverty. And, um, you know, they don't get a lot of democracy in China. And there's a lot of other things that don't work in China. But the poverty numbers have gone down very, very rapidly um, in China. Um, and so the Chinese government, when it's not killing 30 million people in the Great Leap Forward, has actually really delivered on material well-being. But, you know, the Great Leap Forward, you have to take that into account when you're making that sort of comparison. That's the current best estimates. And it's not a, it was entirely man-made famine. Um, you know, so that's one of the great political catastrophes of the 20th century. Here, in the front. Angus, Angus, thank you very much, Robert Wade. Um, in 2008, the World Bank um, published new um, international uh, poverty numbers and concluded that it had been grossly underestimating the number of people in the world who were um, beneath the extreme poverty line and that in India and China there were actually hundreds of millions of people uh, uh, below that line than the World Bank had previously estimated. And I think that you at first thought that this huge change was just a statistical or mainly a statistical um, result which happened because um, the, international, the World Bank's extreme 
international poverty line had previously included India, India's national poverty line, which was very low by international standards. Right. But then India became a middle-income country, and so its international poverty line was taken out of the set of low-income countries whose national poverty lines had defined the World Bank's international poverty line. India was taken out, and therefore its very low national poverty line was removed from the average, and this removal therefore increased the average um, poverty line that the World Bank was using, and this increase in the average line produced hundreds of millions of people more beneath the line. And you said this was just the result. This wasn't real. This was just the result of the statistical measure. Well, it could, What's your conclusion now about all that? I, I actually come to the lecture on Thursday where I will talk through that, but you gave a pretty good summary of it. I mean, at some level, if it happened overnight, it can't be real. You know, because the, the, the people are going about their lives in exactly the same way today as they were yesterday. Um, what I will talk about on Thursday is that the numbers have changed now in the opposite direction. And so the bank is now faced with losing half the poor people in the world. And it doesn't find that very palatable either. It finds that they were very happy to say poverty had doubled. They're very unhappy to say poverty has halved. And I was, well, I'll speculate that on Thursday. The back. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Deaton. So my name's Chris Hoy from ODI. Uh, I wanted to ask your thoughts on the poverty data in Pakistan. So there's been a great deal of controversy, uh, particularly between the government numbers, the World Bank numbers, and then what effectively almost every expert on poverty in Pakistan has had to say. Um, yeah, it would be great to hear your thoughts because particularly for those of us who um, want to know what has happened um, in terms of poverty in Pakistan, for example, it can be very hard to know who to trust, what to do, and how to approach this challenge. If you had any recommendations for practically I, addressing it? I'm okay. sorry, but I just don't know what's happening. I don't know a lot about India, but very little about Pakistan. So I didn't even know that controversy was going on. So. I'll resist the temptation to say never trust the World Bank, though. That was my first thing. I did not say that. Um, hi, my name is Judy Costions. Thank you very much for your lecture. I found it fascinating. Um, what I wanted to ask is a question that's very sort of direct to the UK, is how would you measure poverty? I mean, you've, you've done a fairly sort of demolition job on other people's poverty lines, but how would you construct a poverty line for the UK? Can I just add that it was quite amusing when we had our recession in the UK, and which hit Ireland very, very badly. I noticed on the BBC News they were reporting that the poverty had actually gone down because it's measured as a median, yeah, yeah. and when the whole lot crashed, the median came right, down right. and the poverty people got, got better off. Yep. So that's, that's the big strike against that way of doing things. I was going to say a little bit about that, not much though, so I'll answer your question tomorrow. Um, the, the, the poverty lines that I was talking about today require a price index. So one of the big advantages of measuring poverty relative to mean or median income, which is what the EC does, and these numbers you were referring to, is that you don't need that, right? Because it's just a, you don't have to adjust it by prices all the time. 
But I think the disadvantage you just talked about is a really serious one. I actually didn't know that that had actually happened in this case, but it's clear that's the potential problem, that you can have a really hard time when everybody's being hit and poverty goes down. So I actually am not against, I'm not demolishing these lines. I mean, I think the supplementary poverty line in the U.S. is an extremely useful statistic, and I think that would be fine. I think India would have been better to stick by some arbitrary number, the one they first thought of sort of idea, and not bring all these experts in to turn this thing into an incredibly baroque set of things that no one can understand. So I'm a great believer in transparency. I mean, I would have said, we've got this number, which was $3,000 um, in 1960, um, it's also interesting that $3,000 in 1960, the Gallup, Gallup does a poll which asks people in the community in which you live, what's the minimum amount you would need just to get by? And in 1960, the average of those responses was exactly the U.S. poverty line. Um, the average of those responses is way higher now. And I think I would be very tempted to use that. The worry is that you get pressure groups like the old people's lobby or something telling people how to answer that question. Um, so I'm not against using something like the U.S. line, though it's been broken for so long that the supplementary measure, I think, is okay. I mean, it doesn't do everything, but I don't think there's much wrong with it. And I do think that the British EEC way of doing this things has that problem you talked about, and I think it's probably quite distressing. Because you know bad things are happening. But it's kind of distressing also that you feel you can't make any progress. Or at least it's only well, on distribution. Well, you can make progress, but it turns it into an income distribution question. Yeah. The only way you can make progress is by lifting people at the bottom closer to the middle. Or cutting off the top people. Or cutting off. <laughs> yeah, you, that's hard, though, because it may not move the median down very much. I mean, you know, if you bring the really super rich down a bit, it's not going to change that medium. No, no. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Incidentally, just let me say, I'm going to be around tomorrow and probably not on Thursday because I'm doing something else, but quite a bit of Friday. So if anyone wants to come by and ask me more questions, you're more than welcome to do so. Where, Sorry. Where are you? I'm in 318 in um, 32 Lincoln Inns Field. Is that right? Yeah. 318. Uh, Rich countries often use uh, poverty lines for the allocation of aid to poor countries. Uh, do we have, how does this affect the politics of, you know, uh, constructing poverty lines in poor countries, especially okay. sub-Saharan countries? Especially which countries? Sub-Saharan countries, poor countries. Um, it, I don't think it does. So that, um, you know, the World Bank, the global poverty numbers that the World Bank makes up, it does not use in any of its country work or any of its aid decisions at all. So access to IDA to subsidized um, loans is done on a per capita GDP basis measured not even at purchasing power parity, um, but at what they call atlas exchange rates, which are averaged um, exchange rates. The only place I know where that really happens is the EC, where they use not poverty lines, but PPP corrected GDP to determine what I think are called the structural funds, um, which allocate money to the poorer members of the EC, based on, I think, if their GDP is less than 75% of the average, 
they get a big chunk of money from the EC. And those numbers are large. It's like 40% of the European community budget. Hi. Uh, thank you for a great talk. Uh, the reason why poverty will never be solved is because of the attitude that surrounds it. If we used an attitude of all poverty is manufactured, therefore, instead of trying to tackle poverty, you'd actually tackle the industries that inflict poverty for political reasons, not just money, but political reasons on the world until we do see this uh, situation as a political um, poverty of manufacturing, then nothing will ever change. Let's go after the people that do poverty, not actually trying to solve poverty. Well, I, ha I have some sympathy with that on some days, but it's not the way I think about um, these things. Um, I think they don't care about it very much. Um, and I think it's certainly true that, say, in the Indian context, the business interests don't care about poverty at all. I don't think they're manufacturing, but they're certainly not doing anything to help it. And they're not about by themselves um, to be a contributor to the solution of it. There's a question back there. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, on the, the question of Indian controversies, can I ask where you stand on poverty mitigation strategies, given that there's a quite a strong debate between those who argue for cash transfers and those who argue for um, schemes such as right to work and uh, food delivery? Yeah, I think I'm the only Western-based economist who seems to be against cash transfers. There seems to be an enormous gang of respectable economists who are sort of saying we have to have cash transfers. I think the dangers of this have not been properly thought through. And there's a lot of sort of technical gee whiz stuff about it, that you know, with the internet, we can put money in the accounts of unbanked people or give them magic cards. And I just don't think that's there yet. I mean, it depends. It opens up all sorts of possibilities for fraud. Um, lots of people don't have access to banks. Um, banks are dangerous places for many poor people. And there's the old problem that goes back to Marty Weitzman, if not before. You know, if, you know, if a guy is drowning in the ocean, um, you send them a helicopter, not a cash transfer, right? Because, you know, you say, okay, send them a cash transfer, they can hire a helicopter. But, of course, they've drowned by then. And the, the, the thing with poor people in India is the food scheme may be very corrupt and so on, but it's working for a lot of people and they're actually getting the food. And giving them the money means that money has to be turned into food, like they have to rent the helicopter. And the trouble is that that's not guaranteed. So the rationalization story I was telling here, for instance, what if they vote a cash transfer scheme, what are they going to index it to? Or are they going to index it to nothing? So will they need political authorization to change the amounts when the price of rice goes up? We don't know any of those things. And somehow it's all going to be done through magic cash transfers, which I think is, you know, Bill Gates gone crazy. Um, and, but this is very, very strong. I mean, when I was promoting my book in the World Bank, um, someone got up and said, well, you know, there's no need for poverty in the world anymore because we know who everyone is. You know, as if that made a difference. You know, um, knowing who everyone is really helped Japanese Americans get 
interred during the Second World War. I mean, that sort of money, that knowledge can be used for evil as well as for good. So I'm very unconvinced and very skeptical, and I'm very worried that a lot of people who have very strong vested interests in this will run into this much too quickly. Well, I think we are out of time. And uh, as Angus says, uh, he's, uh, he's around for questions in 3.18 tomorrow. Um, but more important, um, I think this has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, I must say I hadn't quite realized how worrying this all was. And I'm really heartened by the hint that we're going to get some answers, at least to some of these <laughs> normative questions um, as we go along. Um, so, uh, there we go. So, please join us uh, this same time uh, tomorrow for Getting Prices Right The Mysteries of the Index. Thanks to Angus. Thank you.